sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. I'm not pushing for speed, but we're not removing the sanctions. And we're going to have, uh, I think, a very interesting two and a half days in Vietnam. This is an interesting poll that just came out. Listen to this. This new poll finds conservatives actually gaining on liberals. And by that, what we mean is the number of states where liberals outnumber conservatives has dropped. Just moments ago, the House has passed this controversial abortion bill, 106 votes to 36. Now, House Democrats say this is all about preserving the same rights women in Vermont have had for the last 46 years. And now, Stacey Washington. All right, welcome back to the show. We are going to speak to Omar Kadrat, former political advisor to NATO, uh, former counterterrorism prosecutor about the coverage and analysis of the Trump-Kim-North Korea summit that's coming up in Vietnam shortly. Uh, he'll be on with us in the next segment. Right now, we're going to get back to our callers. We have a few people who held over. If you want to join us, it's 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. Uh, we also have that other cut from Jane Sanders, the wife of Bernie Sanders and fellow communist, uh, uh, you know, admirer society president. Right now, let's go to Bill in Oklahoma. Hey, Bill, thanks for holding on. Yes, uh, thank you for taking my call. Uh, I'm just wondering if I'm correct. I believe Bernie Sanders said something about that bread lines were good mm -hmm. because that meant that all the rich people wasn't eating all the food. And if I'm correct in that, I'm, I just wonder why people should see that as a red flag. It should be um, like an explosion on the 4th of July. But I just, I'm not sure, but uh, I can believe my ears, but I believe that he did say that uh, the, uh, the red line was good. So that even makes him worse in disloving the architecture. He seemed to love the poverty, too. And I just wonder what your comment was on that. So... The comment that I have on it is, you know, he, we did talk about it on the show. He's very, very obvious in these things. Like he's, he doesn't hide the fact that he's this, this communist loving socialist. And usually evil is like that. Um, often we think of evil as being something that sneaks up on us and it can. And some people are really crafty at hiding who they really are. But Bernie Sanders is not one of those people. He usually defends, like if you say, I can't believe you said that you like bread lines, he'll defend it. He doesn't deny it. He doesn't, he doesn't try to hide it. That to me is the biggest red flag there is. Someone who's openly advocating for things that would destroy your life. And instead of hiding it and trying to subvert it into your, your thought pattern, they openly try to sell you these horrible ideas. And he's been so effective at it. The crazier he is, the more the Democrats are like, look how he sells crazy. He's great at selling crazy. I'm going to sell crazy, too, because they just want to win. They just want to win and sell whatever the, 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 um, the flavor of the day is. It's, it's like, which way is the wind blowing? I'll sell that. Even if it doesn't work, even if it makes them look stupid, like Kamala Harris, who's destroying her presidential opportunities by saying things and doing things, trying to out Bernie Sanders, Bernie Sanders. She can't out Bernie him. She, he's been a communist for so long. It's in his blood. It's the way he talks. It's the way he thinks. It's who he is. She can't out Bernie him. I don't even know why she's trying. Let's go to Les in Ohio. Hey, thanks for calling the show today. Hey, Sandy. Uh, Stacy, can you hear me okay? Yes, I can hear you. I'm on a bike trail on a cell phone. 
Okay. Uh, I listen. I listen to you every day. I'm on the bike trail from two till about four thirty, and I tried to memorize your phone number, but it's taken me all these different times to get it down in memory so I could give you a call. Uh, I started listening to you when you took over after um, Brian. He had a two-hour show. And uh, I started listening to you, and uh, the things that you say are so spot on. Us believers out here that uh, there's more of us than what you could imagine. I'm a military family. My son-in-law uh, retired as an E-9 Navy had a cousin that fought Golden Gloves in the Navy, and Vietnam didn't want me because I got cancer. <clears throat> I'm a 72-year-old guy now, but I try to jog in the morning and do the bike trail, but I really enjoy listening to what you say, and I saw Bernie when uh, President Trump gave the State of the Union, he, when he said this country will never become socialistic, he was sitting there with his face red and just burning up. And, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, I, I listened to you, and I, I wanted to know who the girl with the permanent tan I think you said you were six foot two and your girlfriends, you get together with your ARs and uh, you really speak the truth. And it's a, it's a refreshing to listen to you when people try to, to lie on your program that you cut them off and tell them you're not going to start this stuff on my show. And uh, <clears throat> if they don't speak the truth, you come right back at them. And the people that don't like that country, I loved it when you said, if you don't like it here, why don't you leave? <laughs> well, thank you. Thank you so much, Les, for listening, especially when you're on the bag trail um, and for and also for calling the show today to say all those kind things. Thank you very much. And I just I want to point out. So, you know, a lot of times people say, oh, it's this echo chamber. Oh, you know, it, it's not. It's a bunch of real people. Um, real. I'm, I'm a real person. My producer is a real person. Everybody who works at American Family Radio, American Family Association, Urban Family Talk, we're all real people. And we are absolutely doing what we want to do. We're doing it because we want to. And anybody who tries to kind of uh, twist that and say that it's not that people aren't listening because they want to or people aren't doing these programs because they want to, it's just so far from the truth. You can hear from um, – I, I love the way everybody who is connected with American Family Radio is doing so because it's the biblical worldview. So, yeah, we talk about politics here on this show – but it's not that we're on one team or the other politically. It's that the biblical worldview mandates that on this issue, we're here. On this issue, we're here. And that's real. That's that's belief systems as opposed to just rah-rah political teams and I want to win and, and that type of stuff. So it's, it's really great. Right now, I want to go to cut two. It's Jane Sanders. She also has this uh, romanticized, idealistic view of uh well communism it's 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 stunning it's it's number two i'm jane sanders director of the youth office and um as as jim said we're echoing each other the the city was beautiful we were astounded with the openness the optimism the enthusiasm in in um the nation we had i think the things that struck me the most were the way that they dealt with with children and with the cultural life of their community. Uh, As Howard mentioned, they put the money into public uh, 
facilities and we have pallet they have palaces of culture which are paid for strictly by trade union dues and those places have movies and dances and a lot of artistic outlets for people for instance they might become members of an orchestra and study to play an instrument and perform and when they go off on performances it's seen not as something that they are doing on their own and they need to take vacation time from work but it's seen as providing contributing to the community life so that becomes part of their work instead of thing that struck me is instead of compartmentalizing their lives into a job and hobbies it's all interrelated and it's all under the uh, the banner of community um, involvement. Okay. So there's so much to kind of unpack there. I guess the, the, the thing that I would want to highlight is how she's trying to convince you with her, you know, calm, sweet voice, that integration of your work life and your, your you know, volunteering or things that you're doing socially is a good thing, meaning um, if you want to go do something social and it has any benefit to the community, you get to go do it during work hours and your employer has to pay for it. And the only way to force that to happen would be to have the government control all of the employment because then the government, because we already see that with government employees. Government employees can go do something philanthropic and they, they still get to be on the clock. That's something that our government does now. But in the private sector, that doesn't usually fly unless you're going to do something philanthropic and that will lead to new business and you have to demonstrate that it actually has in the past or it, it will and it has to produce those results almost immediately. Otherwise, your boss is going to say, do that in your off time. If it helps you bring in more business, awesome. And, and I can tell you, I know for a fact that private sector employees actually do these networking events in their off time. They're not paid for it. And they count that as a part of what they do to increase their sales or increase their business prospects. But how it shows up in the form of payment is that when you, let's say you spend a lot of time networking in your field and you develop an extensive contact list and through that you're able to garner large accounts and bring in new contracts, the way that pays you back is that you're recognized for bringing in the big contracts and you get a promotion or you get a raise or your boss puts you in charge of bigger accounts and more money comes from that. You do get compensated for time that you spend doing these things. But to say that, uh, you know, well, they're going to an orchestra and that's a part of their work. How is me going to an orchestra event and maybe emceeing it? What does that have to do with, you know, my work here at the radio show? I mean, <laughs> why would I expect anybody here to want to underwrite that? And, and why does she feel like that's so important? Why wouldn't she be talking about things that really actually have a lasting impact, like getting more kids to get that 50,000 word threshold before they reach kindergarten, that they would have spoken or read to them 50,000 words between birth and age five? It's a precursor for having a fantastic vocabulary, reading at or above grade level, and progressing through school, um, you know, it, according to the, you know, so not, not being held back. Um, not having learning disabilities. I mean, there's there's this amazing connection between what moms do with their kids from birth to age five that can yield such huge payback for uh, kids, individual families and individual kids on the long term, much more so than some employer being forced by the government to, you know, pay their, their employees while they go perform in an orchestra. Do, do you see how worthless these ideas are? 
and that they're, they're peddled so shamelessly without anyone asking, how can you show us where this benefits society in our country? That's the other thing that I find so annoying about all of these things is that was it, why would you go to Russia, uh, you know, or communist Russia back? Why would you go there to try to find ideas on what could work here in the United States? Like, why? Why is that your source of improvement? Why? So I want to pivot over. We have uh, we're going to have more. In fact, you know, what we're going to do. We're going to save that for tomorrow, I think. Um there's some sources for the $5.7 billion for the border wall, and Senator Lindsey Graham was unpacking that, and I thought it was really good. And we will. We'll get to that. I promised you we would talk about this story, and I have two of these kind of really interesting stories. One of them is this airliners have the cameras on the seat back screen. So I didn't know this, and I was really disturbed to read the story, so I'll share that with you. In other words, you're sitting on the airplane and there's a little television screen in front of you and you might be watching it or you might not because maybe the free in-flight movie is not something you want to watch. Well, many of the makers of these screens have embedded cameras in them so that they can be turned on and they can see what you're doing. Now, you're on an airplane, so you're probably not doing much unless you're one of those people who's on that Facebook page, you know, doing all kinds of crazy stuff on the aircraft and getting featured on Facebook. You're probably just sitting there reading or listening to something on your, your earbuds or maybe you're working on your laptop, but that's not the point. You do have an expectation of privacy sitting on the airplane that some foreign person that you don't know is not recording you and watching your every move or maybe logging your face into some facial recognition software. So we'll talk about that. And then there's this Idaho teen who made $35,000 in four days plowing driveways. So I'm, I'm not exaggerating. He made $35,000 U.S. dollars plowing driveways. This is in Seattle. And his name's David Holston. He plans to donate 20% of his earnings to charity, which, you know, like a tithe. He's 18 years old, and he was in Washington State visiting his mother in the hospital after surgery when his friend said, hey, you should put an advertisement out on Craigslist for landscaping services. During February, the, the city had received its heaviest snowfall in 70 years with up to 10 inches in some places. So he received a flurry of interest from people online willing to give as much as $1,000 so he went home, lugged his equipment with him in his Dodge Ram from Coeur d'Alene in northern Idaho. So the ro he hit the road with jobs lined up all night. And during that time, he was answering his phone and adding new customers to his snow route for Monday. Some people paid. The average was between $50 and $500 and $750, um, which is above the average. The average is $110 per hour. So he killed it in four days, working 24, 12-hour shifts. America, not communist Russia. We'll be back with more after this. Here's Walker Wildman for Redeem Clean Laundry Products. Not only do you get a great product and you get to obviously clean your clothes, get the stains out and use the multi-surface cleaner to clean your countertops and use the dryer sheets. You're doing all of this and the money's going to support the work of American Family Association. Redeem Clean Laundry Products were developed by AFA supporters Lynn Ingram and Jim Duncan to assist in funding the mission of the American Family Association. Redeem Clean products work as well as or better than other products on the market. They're environmentally safe, biodegradable, and they're made right here in the United States. The great thing about Redeem Clean is not only is the product great, but it goes to support a great cause, and that is the work of American Family Association. For clean laundry and a cleaner society, it's Redeem Clean. Visit redeemclean.afastore.net.
This is Viewpoints with Kirby Anderson. Over the last few weeks, we learned why we must exercise discernment when viewing media coverage of hate crimes. Even though so many have turned out to be fake hate crimes, the pressure on media outlets to get your attention prevents them from exercising any discernment. That is why you need to exercise discernment. There were many good reasons why the media should have exercised some caution. Why would a black man in a fairly liberal city like Chicago be attacked in the middle of the night because of his race or sexual orientation? How would his attackers even know who he was since he was probably bundled up because of sub-zero temperatures? You can look through the transcripts of broadcast and read stories in newspapers and internet sites and never see even the slightest hesitation or disclaimer. Over the last few years of writing commentaries, I've documented lots of fake hate crime stories. Here are just a few. There was a story about a homophobic message printed on a cake from Whole Foods in Austin, Texas. It was actually written by a customer associated with the LGBT community. Three black co-eds at the University of Albany said they were attacked on a city bus by white men using racial slurs. Hundreds came to a rally on campus to protest racism, but if you watch the surveillance videos, you can see that they actually attacked a white woman on the bus. And there are many examples of Muslim women falsely claiming that they were attacked and had their head coverings pulled off. Also, there's a student at Beloit College who reported anti-Muslim graffiti on his door. The police investigated and found he perpetrated the fraud himself. These are merely a small sample of people who have used fake hate crimes to call attention to themselves or their cause. This should be a reminder to be patient and wait for all the facts to come out. I'm Kirby Anderson, and that's my point of view. Take Kirby and the Point of View team with you on the go with the Point of View app. Search for Point of View Radio at the Apple or Google Play stores. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Hello. Welcome back to the program. It's my pleasure to welcome our next guest, Omar Kadrat, former political advisor to NATO ambassador, former counterterrorism prosecutor. Omar, thank you for joining the show today. Thank you so much for having me on, Stacey. It's good to talk to you. So we have this Trump-Kim-North Korea summit. It's happening. It's um, kind of highly anticipated. I, I think even with news of the so-called Mueller investigation winding down, a lot of people are really interested in seeing what's going to happen in Vietnam between these two world leaders, specifically about the denuclearization. What are your expectations here? Well, this is the second face-to-face that President Trump and Kim Jong-un are having. Um, I think that we have to ensure that we're tempering our expectations. We can't resolve this in two meetings. However, uh, you have a head of to make verbal commitments. What we got to do now is move into a framework that has a practical and verifiable framework for disarmament. If it would be a huge win for the United States and President Trump if we were to come out of this summit and be able to say that Kim Jong-un is going to, number one, tell us what he's got and where it is, and then number two, have a credible and verifiable framework for disarmament. Now, the question is, why would North Korea do this? Why would Kim Jong-un do this? What does he get out of it? Well, a key factor in understanding the context of this summit is where it's going to be, which is Vietnam. Uh, as we all know, it had a strong communist influence in the past and hostility toward the United States, and we were engaged in hostilities there. But Vietnam now is growing at about double uh, the pace of the economy of even the United States by proportion. And so the idea is 
look at what North Korea is, uh, Mr. Kim Jong-un, and look at where it can be. Join the international community, end the isolationist approach where uh, your foreign policy is essentially based on threatening a catastrophe of a nuclear warfare uh, engagement with multiple nations, and come to the table. Uh, so, you know, and, and to wrap this all up, huge win if we could get to moving into practical steps. Um, we should have expectations that are somewhat realistic, however. Well, I so I'm trying to keep my expectations realistic, but I've been really pleased with the fact that even without a verbal or even without a written agreement, uh, no treaty or anything like that, there there haven't been any rockets fired over the neighbors. So there's there was a really threatening posture that he was undertaking, and it was really rattling a lot of the people who live there. And we have, you know, a, a lot of Americans living in that region of the world who would have been, and you know, in the in the line of fire, as it were. And so just the fact that we've moved past that to a place where they're now meeting and, and conversing with each other seems to be a, a, a victory of sorts. That's a very important point. And um, the fact that the, the North Koreans have agreed, and specifically Kim Jong-un, because he's just a sole decision-maker there, to stop the missile tests. And the United States, uh, in exchange, agreed to stop its military exercises, uh, you know, that get close to the North Korean territory. We have 23,000, about 23,500 American troops in South Korea, and that's not including family members. Um, it is very important that we de-escalate and reduce the tension and the sense of hostility to open up the conditions for us to be able to move to more practical steps toward disarmament. You're absolutely right that that was a big win without necessarily coming to any either legally binding or uh, strong political commitments that we were able to accomplish that. Um, now, the, the big question is, what is the role of China going to be? Uh, the United States can do everything it can to try to bring about a, a, an outcome that achieves irreversible stability. But we have to remember that China is a key influencer here. And China has been pretty consistent about arming, not only arming North Korea, but actually being the source of providing the equipment and material necessary for North Korea to develop its nuclear capability. So um, China can literally turn out the lights in North Korea. About 90% of North Korea's trade is composed with China. And China has tremendous influence. What China does not want is a unified Korean Peninsula that is pro-America. And so um, China doesn't necessarily view a nuclear North Korea as a threat to itself. Uh, China does perceive the tensions escalating with the United States as a threat in itself and a concern that a Kim Jong-un that could become pro-America, that could end up having relations with the United States like Japan or Vietnam, is not in the interest of China. And so um, to the extent that we can leverage our political capital, we've got to get China on board and make China understand that China will lose a lot if it does not get on board with us trying to achieve a lasting peace. Okay, so, Omar, you, you touched on one that I, I'd planned to ask you about that. So, okay, can we just, like, in the, in the real world, and I understand that the president has been actually been really successful in getting China to do some things that had been previously thought to be impossible with trade and things like that. So I understand he's a good negotiator. But the idea that uh, North Korea would become, as the president has described, and I totally agree with him, it sounds so fantastic because they do have 
some beautiful natural wonders and things, their beaches and stuff. And so they could develop it and become a tourist destination and start to operate like a regular country instead of being that like hermit hellhole that they currently have. But why would China want them to become more capitalistic when right now they kind of have them under their thumb and they can look down on them and they can say, look, you know, look at these backward North Koreans and they can kind of control Kim Jong-un with these little, you know, they, they, they're like puppet masters over him. Why would they, what would be the impetus to make them do any of that? Because it only benefits us for him to come into the developed world and start building, you know, luxury resorts there and start treating his people like people. It doesn't benefit the Chinese at all. I think you're absolutely right. And so the challenge for us is really going to be trying to recalibrate China's perception and China's calculus as to their interests regarding this whole thing. So, you know, I think what China needs to understand is if we go down the road of escalation and we end up in hostilities, which nobody wants, the United States is not interested in engaging in a catastrophic level of warfare uh, with North Korea, with South Korea uh, being the first to pay the price in a region that will get destabilized. Now, the result of us going down the route of escalation and potential military conflict is the United States will protect our interests, and we will ensure that we have a regime in North Korea that is no longer threatening to the United States. So what that means is China loses control and predictability of the outcome in the region and in North Korea specifically if North Korea tries to go down this road with us of escalation. The United States is not going to lose. We're going to ensure that our homeland is protected and our interests are, are protected. And so uh, if China can understand that the alternative is the potential unpredictability of a North Korean regime that could become not just joining the international community for commerce purposes, but really pro-America, because we're going to ensure that we're not going to have a regime that is nuclear-capable and threatening us, then China needs to understand it's going to have to accept this outcome. Uh, it can... It can pull its levers internationally, politically, militarily, economically, in other ways. And it's just a losing bet for China to try to take North Korea and the United States down this road for much longer. You know, China plays this waiting game, and the United States is done playing it. We're after a result right now, and China's got to understand that time is up. And, and, and the last point on this is, as you pointed out, President Trump has changed the rules of the game. President Trump is not making China feel that they could play games with us forever in a number of ways. And, and President Trump has done that with a number of countries and political matters. So China's going to wake up. President Trump gives rude awakening to lots of parties around the world. And so um, to the extent that China can understand that we're serious, that there is a binary approach here, you're either getting on board with what we're doing or you're losing the ability to influence the outcome because we're going to protect our interests. Uh, then maybe China will kind of wake up and, and smell the coffee on this. So I like to call it the emerging Trump doctrine for foreign policy because he has really reset the table in a number of areas with a number of countries. And everyone was wailing and complaining. And now things are actually starting to work out. Two years in, we're actually seeing some things, some positive results from that. Um, is there anything else you can think of that sticks out right away as uh, something that we could kind of put in that category as the Trump doctrine in the foreign policy arena? Sure. I mean, um, look at the North Atlantic Treaty Organization, NATO. Um, I was a political advisor to NATO. Uh, President Trump has been criticized so 
so widely about the way he's speaking to NATO countries. And, you know, while we all don't have to necessarily like the fact that President Trump might be uh, perceived to be putting down our allies who are standing shoulder to shoulder with in active combat zones like Afghanistan and so forth, the result of it was, and the NATO Secretary General has said this publicly, that President Trump has influence bringing about a stronger NATO. You have nations that have produced more, committed more to their common defense and and to their own defenses, uh, and meeting their obligations. Um, NATO countries are supposed to contribute a minimum by agreement of 2% of their GDP toward their own defense, not our defense, but toward their own defense. Mm -hmm. And the United States has not been uh, treated fairly in in that regard for a very long time. Now, um, were there some negative words said? Yes, you know, feelings Mm -hmm. are hurt. But what was the result? You have a stronger NATO. You have a NATO that can uh, stand up to to Russia that uh, is amassing uh, equipment and uh, a presence um, in Eastern Europe. You have a European command uh, that is putting a a stronger presence in Eastern European countries and a stronger NATO. So I I think that that should be really highlighted. That should not be forgotten. Um, NATO is at the center of gravity with a lot of our geopolitical interests. And this is a direct result of what you're referring to as the new Trump doctrine. Wow. Okay, that was, guys, that's worthy for the podcast, which obviously every show goes into the podcast. But I would say, you know, clip this at that point on YouTube and share it. Uh, because I think you, you've you kind of broken it down for us in ways that we can not only absorb and understand, but that we can share with others when people, because one of the things I like to do, Omar, is have quantifiable reasons why I support the president as opposed to just because, you know, he's not a Democrat. It's things that he's doing that I feel like, okay, that's that that justifies my vote for him. And and this is a constant thing. It's like a constant ongoing job interview where the president, you know, he's got to kind of win again. Is it what he did last month isn't enough. He's got to do new things. And I think this summit with the leader of North Korea is another it's just another win for him because they're sitting down and they're talking instead of fighting on Twitter, which I felt at the time I was kind of flabbergasted, but it really worked. He actually got down in the sand with them and kicked some sand and they pushed each other a little bit. And then they decided, I think we're going to, you know, I think we're going to actually talk now, like talk real, actual quantifiable business. And they've done that and they're going to do it again. So, um, Excellent to have you on the show. Your analysis is spot on. And I really appreciate the perspective of someone who you you worked with members of NATO and you were there. Um, And I wanted to say thanks for coming on the show today. Thank you so much for having me. Really appreciate it. All right. Hope to talk to you again soon. Uh, That was Omar Kudrat. He's a former political advisor to a NATO ambassador and former counterterrorism prosecutor. So really great background there. And I love it when we have guests like this on the show. Uh, the, The expertise and knowledge base there is just outstanding. And it's really, I just think, you know, again, I'm, I'm not some blind supporter of the president, but I, I think it's, it's a mistake not to give credit where credit is due because you're going to give the smacks and the criticism when you don't like something. So definitely, if you see something going on that you think is good, go for it, you know, compliment it, share it, talk to other people about it. Um, it's validation, yes, for, you know, for the vote that I cast, certainly, but it's also a big deal for us as a country. Um, when he talks about the number of people we have there, Omar was just mentioning, you know, just part of the, the expats, Americans who live in that region of the world, 
These are people who expect the same level of safety and security that we expect here in the homeland. They know it's a little different because they're in a foreign country, but they're still they're in a country that we are closely allied with. And they expect for us to maintain peace and prosperity there as well. And we want to see our allies have a level of security that, you know, you're not they're not constantly worried about similar to the situation in Israel where they're surrounded by enemies and they're constantly receiving rocket fire. And it's just a it's a different way of living. And uh, so, you know, it's it's good to see the president make this move. I'm just holding back, you know, how it is when you know something, possibly something great could come out of it, possibly nothing could come out of it. Um, I doubt if they're going to leave the meeting with a negative aspect. I think they've gotten past that initial part. But it's, uh, it's, it's going to be interesting to see what they come up with in the way of developing this relationship. And uh, I think the people who were saying, you know, a year ago, oh, he's elevating this, you know, 10 pot dictator. He's he's making this guy, um, you know, valid and, and elevating him. OK, sure. If having a conversation elevates someone. But in the intervening months, have we seen like a huge popularity junket for Kim Jong Un? Not really. People still see him in the same way that they have in the past. But what they have seen is that for someone who seems so intractable, intractable before, someone who just, he couldn't negotiate, he, could, he seemed like he couldn't get anything done, he's found some kind of common ground with President Trump where whatever the mutual respect is, whatever the, the, the exchange has been in the past, they have now a desire to continue to develop the relationship. And I would like for people who are thinking about, you know, if you're already thinking about 2020, Think about what a change in leadership in the United States could bring about in the relationship with North Korea. If we were to send someone in there who just wanted to kowtow and bow and wanted to kind of re, uh, reorient ourselves with the hands-off, arm's-length positioning that we had before under previous presidents, which brought us the tests, the, the rocket firing, the missile tests, the development of nuclear you know, capabilities – that was all going on under all of the pre previous presidents, whether they were Democrats or Republicans. Now you have Donald Trump and all of that is kind of screeched to a halt. And they're talking about something else, which is developing North Korea into an actual country, a place where people could work and earn a living and a place where foreigners could travel there and, and take advantage of the beauty of their beaches, et cetera. I mean, again, wh what's to find wrong with that, right? I'm it sounds like something we can get behind as a country. Um, why would we want to change that? All right. When we get back, we're going to talk about the Venezuelan citizens uh, and the socialist policies and more. Stay there. Have you noticed how your priorities change as you grow older? They are simple and silly as children. Most of us don't even want to admit what they were in college. As a young adult, they start becoming more serious, and then your priorities completely change when you have a family. As we reach the last quarter of life, we start thinking more about our mortality and what waits for us. The problem with that is none of us are guaranteed any amount of time. Don't wait until you think you need to get serious about God. He sent His Son, Jesus Christ, to offer you forgiveness and hope for eternity. Don't ignore that gift and wait any longer to invite Jesus Christ into your life. Call 888-NEED-HIM to learn how to have a personal relationship with Jesus and take care of the biggest priority in life, 
That number is 888-NEED-HIM. 888-NEED-HIM. Laura Perry. She refused to use the male pronouns or call me Jake. So what that did for me is that she didn't know at the time, that was like a tethered reality. God never let me forget who I was. And that was a radical thought to me, and I did not want to hear it at first. When I first heard it, it really kind of made me angry. The Marriage, Family, and Life Conference is coming June 20th through the 22nd. Learn more and register at urbanfamilytalk.com. There are many ways you can listen to the shows of Urban Family Talk. One of those ways is through our very own app. Whether you have an iPhone or an Android, just go to the App Store and search for Urban Family Talk. You'll have immediate access to 24-hour programming as well as the podcast for each show. You'll be able to tune in no matter where you are. Speaking of tuning in, we have our own channel on another radio app called TuneIn. Cool, right? Urban Family Talk is everywhere. Just download the app and take us wherever you go. This is Poll Paris with Fox News Director of Polling, Dana Blanton. A second summit for the United States and North Korea this week. In our Fox News poll, an overwhelming majority says the country poses at least a minor threat to U.S. national security. That includes just over half who say major threat. That puts North Korea above the migrant caravan and instability in Venezuela on a list of threats. By a 12-point margin, Democrats are more likely than Republicans to call North Korea a threat. Yet Democrats are far less likely than Republicans, by nearly 30 points, to back military action to stop the country's nuclear program. President Trump declared during the State of the Union, If I had not been elected president of the United States, we would right now, in my opinion, be in a major war with North Korea. Compared to two years ago, three in 10 voters think conflict with North Korea is less likely now. Two in 10 say more likely. Largest share, four in 10 voters, think the likelihood of conflict with North Korea is about the same now as when Trump took office. I'm Dana Blanton, and that's your Poll Parade. You can download episodes of Stacy on the Right from the podcast page on AFR.net or UrbanFamilyTalk.com. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. I have some memories when I was 11 years old, as well as a little uh, earlier. You could see shortages of food, especially milk, toilet paper. Uh, by the time I left Venezuela, we didn't have electricity at least once a week. Uh, water sometimes went out for weeks long. It, and I was privileged, let me tell you, because I know people who lived in the rural areas instead of the city, Caracas, where I lived, and they sometimes didn't have electricity for weeks. Now people are starving because they don't have even basic food. Look, there is no further proof of my argument than Bernie Sanders' statements uh, a few days ago when he refused. He refused to say that Nicolás Maduro was a dictator, and he refused to recognize Juan Guaidó as the president of Venezuela, something that even Speaker Nancy Pelosi and other Democrats have done. This is really dangerous, and Democratic primary voters really need to uh, push out these radical Democrats from their party, because not all Democrats are that way. And I really urge uh, bipartisan compromise on this issue, because if we continue Venezuela with socialism, and if we push very radical socialist policies in the United States, uh, the United States might get closer to what we're seeing right now in Venezuela. So let me just first of all say, af- right after that, so right after he said that, the host on CNN said, I just want to make a correction that, uh, you know, Bernie Sanders and the Democrats' New Deal is not socialism. And those, those, those ideas have nothing to do with what you're seeing in Venezuela, which is an utter fabrication, total lie. And, uh, 
so, you know, and programming note, the spammer who's spamming me uh, with the name Moses, um, I've just now blocked your spams yet again. Um, so I'm not reading those. I have no idea what you've emailed me. I don't have to open them to uh, actually block you. So I've blocked you again. Um, just to let you know, I'm not getting whatever hate-filled garbage you're sending to me. As soon as I see your email, I just send it over to the spam. So I'm not getting those. I know you're listening to the show, though, and good for you for paying attention. And I hope you actually learn something and come around to uh, not being a spammer. So I think that's important when we're talking about listening to people who actually have some knowledge base on an issue this Venezuelan immigrant criticizing Democratic hopefuls for trying to bring socialism to America, he's not kidding around and he's not making stuff up. He's saying the truth that socialism has failed Venezuelans so much so that they now have aid and food and diapers and supplies on the edge of the uh, country right there at the border and Maduro won't let it in. So rich people are doing okay. But the poor are literally starving and they're eating trash and they're, you know, having to slaughter their pets and eat them. And they've raided the zoos for animals and they're, they're just they're desperate. And the aid that's there. I mean, you would think a dictator would say, you know what? I don't care what you know, I don't care if people send aid here. Send all the aid you want. I don't have to pay for it. Well, the reason why they don't want aid to get in is because then they'd have to admit that they need aid. They'd have to admit that what they're doing isn't working and that people are starving. And so instead of doing that, they're just let the aid sit there. Oh, my goodness. Someone in one of the chats, Smoke, says he burned all the supplies up. What kind of demonic garbage is this? So and Americans, just to make sure you understand what kind of people we have living within the border and why we don't need any more crazy because we're all full up. Um, of Americans on Twitter saying that the real problem is Marco Rubio because Marco Rubio texted a picture of Saddam Hussein um, and said, this could be you, Maduro, because, you know, we, we deposed Saddam Hussein. Oh, man, um, that is just terrible, terrible news. And instead of being angry at Maduro, they're angry at Marco Rubio. Like, really, bros? You're angry at Marco Rubio for sending a tweet? You're not angry at this dictator for burning up good supplies? You, first of all, so anybody who's ever seen what they do for humanitarian aid, you know, it takes hundreds of people and so much coordination for logistics because they go, they literally go to uh, a place that maybe has warehouse space and they'll say, look, we're going to gather some aid together um, for people in Venezuela. And we know that you don't have anybody leasing this, this warehouse right now. So can we use this warehouse space to stage this uh, relief effort? And we'll maybe be here for a month or 90 days or whatever. And then the owner of that space either agrees or doesn't agree. And sometimes it's a person who is, you know, owns warehouse space will say, I have warehouse space you can use. Come on, you can, you can stage it here. And that's the address they use to bring the shipments of aid in. So they have somewhere to actually sort through it and decide how to package it, whether they're packaging it into a box as a care package or they're keeping all the diapers together because they're going to deliver it. And then the people who are actually passing the aid out will say, everyone who needs diapers get in this line, everyone who needs, you know, so they're, there are different ways to put it together. And people who do these aid type, you know, the gathering and then the dissemination, they know what they're doing. So we're talking about just thousands of, of man hours of people who have to receive the donations, 
or open them, organize them, catalog them, then package them back up for shipping. Either they're flying them in or they're taking big uh, rigs and driving them all the way down. Whatever the case is, if he burned it up, he literally burned up thousands of man hours, tens of thousands of dollars of worth of, of, of you know, free things. Um, it's just crazy that he would do that. Like, why would he do that? Ah, but then again, um, you know, this is not a normal, normal guy. This, he's a dictator. Like, first of all, he's still fat. Um, everybody else is starving. The average weight loss of a Venezuelan is like 30 pounds. And he's still got a pot stomach. So he doesn't still have a pot stomach because his stomach just isn't going down because he can't lose weight. He's, he's looking like that because he's eating still. He still has a very nice lifestyle while his his subjects, they're not his countrymen anymore. They're his subjects. He's treating them like he owns them. They're starving to death. It's just terrible. Um, so I wanted to finish up. It, we were talking about this story right before we had our guest about this kid. He's a young guy. I shouldn't call him a kid. He's 18. He says he mows lawns during the summer and yearly by mowing lawns in the summer, he earns $30,000 a year. So this kid who's 18 already has a job that pays 30000 a year for summer work. That means he's making roughly ten grand a month in the summer. That's good consultant money right there. You, you know, you work on a campaign, you'll probably pull down five to 10000 a month. He's doing that mowing lawns. So he normally, and, and this is just the going rate where he was, because he, he, he lives in Coeur d'Alene, but his mom was down in Seattle, and he went down there to see her. He normally, the sh- show... Snow mowing, blowing, whatever costs about $110 an hour. But if there's a lot of snow and there aren't very many people to do the work, some plowers will charge $400 an hour. They're like, you want your driveway plowed? $400 an hour. If you want me to show up, $400. Well, he said he was accepting jobs for $500 and $750 an hour in some places. They're like, if you show up, we'll pay you $750. And so he, he did it. He showed up and he got paid. He said he was working 12-hour days from last Saturday to Wednesday, took Sunday off. He worked a whopping 24 hours straight from Monday to Tuesday, resulting in an astonishing amount of money to take home. He says, he quotes Proverbs 9 when explaining that the Lord doesn't want you to be a sluggard. He says he could have taken even more. He said he had to turn down offers because he just didn't have the manpower to take every offer that he was given. I would have employed five plow trucks. If I had a whole crew, I would have sent them all over to Seattle. He says, my parents taught me to work. You need to get out there and plow your field and make your living. That's exactly what he plans to do as a part of his 10-year plan of expanding his business before selling it. The Grateful Team who aims to make $100,000 this year, is planning on giving 20% of his recent earnings to his church. After the $7,000 donation, he'll buy lawn equipment and use the remainder as part of a fund that he's saving towards buying his first house. His first house for cash, by the way. Speaking about how Luke 12:31 Bible verse, but seek his kingdom and all these things will be given to you as well. He says that proved... Um, inspiring during his hard work and that he knew he was given these opportunities to make these large sums for a reason. He says, the Lord blessed me with the money for the sole purpose of advancing his kingdom 
all the glory goes to God. And if you're wondering where this story was, it's not Charisma News and, and all these other news outlets will probably pick it up. And I'm not downing them for not picking up. I'm saying where the story was located, where I found it was on the UK Daily Mail. That's not a, that's not a right-leaning website. It's a lefty site. Um, and most of their articles are about celebrities wearing bathing suits or whatever. But they have a news section that does politics. And this story caught my eye because I saw the number 35,000 in four days. And I thought, what could he possibly be doing? It's proof that you can do anything. If you're willing to work, you know, if, if for, I know some people, if you said, oh, you'd have to work 24 hours straight, but you know, over four days you can make 35,000. They'd say, eh, I can't work 24 hours straight. You know, I just, I don't know if I can. He was like, he just kept working. He kept getting phone calls and he kept working. And now he's caught the eye of business owners, Wendy's and other places like that. And if you think they're not going to call him the next time there's a major snowfall and say, we're, we're expecting 10 inches of snow, you certainly you're going to come down here with your crews, right? And he is going to drive down again and make money. The other thing is, if anybody who's living in Seattle who has half a brain, they should be thinking he could have had five crews. Let me look and see. Okay, how much money do I have saved? How much does it cost to, uh, to rent a truck? Maybe I just rent the truck on my first weekend, but maybe I can make 15000 on a weekend. Or how about if I, I get some of my buddies together and we buy a, you know, a snowplow to put on the front of the truck we already own just because you got to start somewhere. If you're not planning on doing something having to do with snow removal and you live in Seattle and you're not working, you, you're not reading, you're not understanding what's just happening here. That kid saw a huge gaping hole of opportunity and he jumped in it and filled it. And as reward for that, he made 35 grand and he's going to make a hundred thousand this year. Cause it, what is it? February. It might snow there a couple more times before the season is over. And so he's going to make money again. And then over the summer, he will convert that snow plowing. That's, that's in behind him. That's the winter. He'll be doing lawn mowing and edging and whatever other kind of landscaping jobs people ask him to do. And he's going to hit that target. So that's why I don't understand why we're sitting up and we're believing the lie. It's, it's, a, it's only a lie unless you believe it. The lie is America is stacked up against minorities. America is stacked up against people who can't, um, can't get past their skin tone, their permanent tan. They're, you know, too tall, too short, too fat, too skinny. You know, don't have the right educational background. And while... A person is sitting up thinking that about themselves and downgrading themselves. Other people are sitting around thinking, I could have sworn I just heard this, you know, my neighbor say at the grocery store, she can't find anybody to mow her grass and that it's her and her neighbor on the other side of her, the neighbor on the other. So both of her neighbors on the sides of her and the lady across the street and the lady whose yard backs up to hers. None of them have anybody to mow their grass and they're all older. So they don't have, they just don't have anybody. Their kids don't live in town. They're single. They live alone. They, they, they need someone to mow their grass. And you're standing there listening to that conversation and thinking, and I got nothing to do this summer. Uh, yes, you do. You have to, in between now and the summer, find enough money to buy yourself either a push lawnmower or a riding lawnmower used on Craigslist, by the way. You need to watch some YouTube videos about how to keep it running, what you need to do, change the oil, you know, rinse it off when you're done, whatever. And then you need to get the address of that lady. Hey, um, we're neighbors. I, I live two subdivisions over from you. Did you say you needed somebody to mow? Um, 
can I come over and take a look at your yard? I, I, I'd be willing to mow it for you. Go over there, ask her what she's willing to pay and tell everybody around it. She's, she's paying me this much to mow it. So all y'all got to pay me the same amount and you have to pay me the day that I do it. When I'm done, I want money in my hand and I'll do it every week. That's how you take advantage of all the opportunities that are laying around. I can't tell you how many times people I know are emailing around. They'll say, do you know anybody who tiles? Do you know anybody who does, you know, this kind of construction work, that kind? Because people can't find anybody to do the work. So if you know how to do it or you're willing to take a few extension courses at the community college to learn how to do it, why are you not doing that so you can get that work? It's not all about doing some fancy job with a suit. It's about right now you need to make some money. Right now there are opportunities all over the place to make money. So instead of saying, oh, I'm a victim, I just can't do it, do it. You're not a victim unless you're a victim of yourself. You, we're all victims of our own decisions that we've made. We're all victims of the idea that we've, I chose this instead of choosing that and now I'm here. You know, and you got to walk that out until you can get out of it. But if you have an opportunity to make money, instead of thinking about white people someplace who might be stopping people from doing, forget about that. Just don't waste your mental energy on that. It's such a great story. You know we're going to be talking about tonight at the dinner table. (laughs) My family is like, what is she doing? I'm bringing more news and information to the dinner table. (laughs) All right. That's the show for today. God bless you. I hope you are warm and safe and whole and ready for the show tomorrow at 3 p.m. Eastern right here on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Thanks for making your home at AFR. 